Shanghai. <laughs> Steph. I hope Chaplin out. That's Chaplin. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't want to see that. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Are you not entertained? I am the father. Wait! Got you! Turn around! Here's Johnny. I'll be back. Hey, look at the car! Please, I'm saying movie boys! Well, good movies! Yes, welcome to Well Good Movies, the podcast that gives you the topics worth discussing and the movies worth watching. I'm your host, David Osger. And I am back in control, guys. I'm here in the hosting duties after Craig's brief stint as the master of the end game. Just like Thanos now, he's he's done his deed. He's retired uh, off on a farm somewhere. He's watching the sun go down uh, on a universe that is grateful. So <laughs> hopefully now everything is restored. Craig has... Uh, caused his chaos. Craig, how, how are things on the farm? Yeah, so long as you're permanently in power, I will never stop. <laughs> That's not very Thanos-like. You're supposed to just go and retire. He died. That's what happened. Yeah, Craig has learned from the mistakes of history. It doesn't want to be beheaded. <laughs> if you haven't checked it out, guys, we had a very fun special last time with our end game extravaganza in which we had three teams battle it out to be our champions. And today we have with us those champions, coincidentally, because uh, we did want to get them back on the show as we haven't seen them in quite a while. They are good members of the Well Good Movies family. I don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> no, I don't know. Uh, it's so traditional. So yes, we have with us Die Hill and Stefanos Florakis back again. Because today we are talking about themes and films that are very relevant to what they've come on and discussed before and are perfect for going down the realms of comedy and history. So we wanted them back for that. So today is going to be a very exciting, very fun show because we've got lots of interesting facts for you. We've got lots of big topics which are very relevant in the world today. You'll learn some stuff and, yeah, hopefully have some commentary on the state of the world and the state of the world 80 years ago through some nice satire and some great comedians, including Jim Carrey, which we'll get onto very soon. But first off, I wanted to get a feel for what these winners are all about as film goers, as film fans. So like I said, they won our end game through their knowledge and I thought it'd be a good chance to sort of get to know them a bit more because we didn't have as much time with that last time. Uh, we'll start with Stefanos, because I think there's one clear film that we do need to talk about, which we didn't get chance in the last episode, which was Phantom Thread, which uh, <laughs> Craig begrudgingly put into the movie vault. When it's come up on the show before, obviously it's had a bit of a bad rep, so you're here now, Steph, to actually support this film. Apart from torturing us, which is one reason I'm sure you put it in there, you know, what what is what is your feelings towards this film? Why, why do you love it so much? Why do you feel it deserves to go in? Well, right, to be fair, for one thing, I am a big Paul Thomas Anderson fan. Yeah. Uh, so there is a bit of bias to how I feel around his films. But mm-hmm. secondly, I think that is the poor one it means of actual objective criticism is that I have done a lot of study about gothic romances. Mm. And for a lot of people, whenever they think gothic, they're thinking about the uh, the dreadful horrors of it. 
something like Hill House or like what Guillermo del Toro has been done in the past. But in reality, Gothic is far more about the the darker side of any human relationship, but within the aspect of a beautiful sightseeing. It could be either like a big manor or even like even a very solicit society. And, and the third author really follows that, all this trend between the relationship, but also the dysfunction of it. And in the end, it kind of becomes basically this beautiful but toxic relationship. But it only works because the both of them are almost like as worse as the other. And I love it means as a character study. I don't, and I mean, I don't try to understand why people hate a film. And it's not, uh, don't try to question that. But that's with also my own love of PTA and costume drama and Diane Day Lewis, all the stuff kind of like bring all together. Also, I'm a big Radiohead fan. So, Johnny Greenwood on the score and him doing almost classic score from from the from the silver era of Hollywood is very fulfilling to me and it like combines a lot of the stuff that I love into one film. And to be honest, most of my favorite films are like that. It's never like a direct thing that I aim for. It's multiple different things and it yeah. feels like um, a puzzle of all the things I love. Yeah, and that, that's often, you know, like nobody can say that, you know, there's a film out there which is absolutely perfect because, you know, it just means that people are willing to oversee certain flaws or aspects of them that maybe other people can't get over, etc. Obviously, notice that Steph did very well as well to get through that entire thing where Craig is just there <laughs> giving him the finger throughout the entire thing. So uh, looking very angry there, Craig, throughout. Consistently, yeah. <laughs> uh, but Dai, like I said, we've had you on several times before, but it's usually been talking about specific topics or specific films. So we've gone down into the history of Frankenstein, the Invisible Man. But I wanted to give this chance to actually, you know, ask, you know, what are some of your favorite films? What are the ones that you sort of like cling to the most? Is it the kind of more historical ones? Is it, you know, obviously we've discussed before by you. You know, you love the, the King Arthur adaptations and stuff, but what is actually like, you know, this is my favourite film, that that kind of thing? Probably Indiana Jones, the main three. Yeah. There's archaeology, there's adventure, there's faces melting. It's all my favourite things. <laughs> um, I love those movies. They're just incredibly perfect. So, yeah, that's what I would say is the Die Hill pick of favourite movie. I actually saw that face melting used in something the other day. I can't remember exactly what. It might be something I sent Craig, but it was somebody, you know, when you have those uh, memes or videos in which somebody's done something crazy and they were just cut into loads of different crazy reactions and one of them was like the face melting and it was like this crazy music going on in the background. But yeah, it's just a perfect <laughs> image to use for when, when you're completely blown away by something. Yeah, it scared me to death as a child. I absolutely hated it. And so we just have to turn it off before <laughs> that point happens. Yeah. And and the Temple of Doom is quite infamous as well for being like quite like scary and bleak. Dark. Yeah. It never scared me as much. I really like that. A lot of people hate that film. I really like it. Yeah. Less well, archaeology in that one. Yeah, exactly. 
so yeah, so it still li- links into the love of history and adventuring and all that kind of stuff, but with a bit more fictional aspects. More shooting people. <laughs> yeah. So today, rightly so, we are talking about history, as you might have guessed before. You know, we have two guests that are very good in that realm, especially in the end game. You know, Steph and Di were using their knowledge of past films to help them towards their win. Uh, but also, you know, we've been thinking recently about uh, satires and comedy, how that can be used to help culture and help film, especially when we're going through quite dark times. You know, we obviously got cinemas are closing. We've got like, you know, an election going on in America, which I'm sure we're all loving at the moment. And, you know, especially because as I saw in uh, a recent publication, you know, it says that election will change the world and change the politics here and in America. So it's, you know, a big talking point for people at the moment. But a good way to sort of relieve yourself of all that seriousness and darkness is comedy. And this year we've had, thankfully, Jim Carrey has sort of made a resurgence. He was in Sonic the Hedgehog as Eggman. Uh, we've also seen him sort of start to reappear in television series. So we wanted to start off our conversation about satire and comedy with Jim Carrey, about how he has had a history of being, you know, this big figure in Hollywood, big comedian, a sort of jokester a clown but has recently been used in the snl sketch which you brought up steph uh which parodied the the recent debate between uh trump and biden so so what made you want to bring up the the snl sketch what was it that stood out to you um for one uh jim carrey he's not only like for the ones for those he didn't just come back for the one sketch he actually gonna be for the entirety of i don't know if the whole season but definitely up until the elections as joe biden and oh excuse me former vice president and currently presidential candidate joe biden (laughs) (laughs) Uh, to be very formal about it and it's interesting because there used to be a time where uh, SNL was always political, uh, but ever since the 2006 U.S. elections, they've really had a stance on a political view. Uh, but up until that point, they were always trying to be as objective as possible and have uh, both parties basically be either judged upon, uh, commented upon, and even sometimes agreeing with. But after the, but, but four years ago, they had a complete belief on the one side of the party. And that has caused a lot of conversations and a lot of people who weren't really aware of some of the things of the then candidates and now presidents had learned it from SNL. And although by the way, which is not always a good thing to have a sketch show to be your main political platform. But yeah, but especially for Jim Carrey, someone who was such a huge name in the 90s to come back to basically do this with Alec Baldwin also doing Trump as he's been doing the last four years is fascinating. And it really reminded me of a lot of other personalities in the past, comedic personalities specifically, who have done something similar as 
one of the people we're going to talk today had did something similar back in nine, 1940. Exactly. Yeah, it, it's crazy how, you know, it's transcended through the decades. When you were saying about, you know, how they started that resurgence as well, I was thinking of Melissa McCarthy when she did the Sean Spicer. She always had the desk and, you know, that became like a running gag. You know, that that was very good. You also had Kate McKinnon. So you have a lot of, you know, comedians that you see now in films or often carrying their own movies, which started in SNL, which has obviously been a big thing for quite a few years. Uh, Dai, did you check out the, the sketch? What, what did you think? Yeah, it's very good. Um, I think what stands out, particularly in terms of Jim Carrey, is his physical performance in it, is the way he brings that. And he really shows the difference between someone of the scale of Jim Carrey and the quality compared to when other people try doing impressions, and political impressions, like the way he uses his body and then just his face as well. <laughs> yeah. He delivers so much. is absolutely fantastic. And he's it really shows how a individual performance can bring a sketch to life. And they do make fun of him and try to find ways to poke fun at Biden in those sketches as well. It's just, obviously, Donald Trump is such a ridiculous character. You can't, it, it's impossible not to have a kind of a goodie when yeah. there's a sketch of Trump in it, because he's such an obvious, and particularly in that sense, they're reflecting that debate in which he was just in, interrupting all the time. And so I think it's, it's important, it, when he's saying about how SNL has suddenly gone kind of partisan, you know, they've suddenly chosen a side in politics. It's actually kind of impossible not to with satire because you're, you're always going to paint somebody more favorably than somebody else. And so it's a matter of people just trying to decide what they want to, how they want to depict things. And now they've got a bit more open about it. Yeah. Especially with that sketch. I think what they ended up having to do with Biden is I think they, they ended up putting a lot of characteristics onto him, uh, mm. characteristics that we would probably assume, right? So the sort of inner monologues of no, don't, don't snap. <laughs> Remember that smile you learned in anger management, which is something that, you know, people basically transcribe onto him. We're, we're Trump. They were literally just, this is just the type of thing that he does, but yeah. slightly exaggerated. But not even, I mean, well, because in the actual, inter- the real debate, what they said he, inter- he interrupted like 30 odd times or something. Yeah. So they didn't even exaggerate the amount of times he interrupted. Oh yeah, but in that terms of what he's- interrupted fewer times in the sketch. But in terms of what he's actually saying when he interrupts, right? So yeah. obviously he's not interrupting, just doing things like gay, um, <laughs> like in the, in the actual sketch. But that's where, yeah. that's where like just the exaggeration versus the characteristics come from. So they yeah. are making an attempt to be like to be balanced in that situation. But yeah, at the end of the day, if they're going to do a sketch about the American election, they also have to have a point to it rather than just, haha, look how ridiculous this is. So I am glad that yeah. they tried to go for that message of just choose a better America, please. Uh, <laughs> and that great slogan of make America not literally be on fire again. Yeah. And I think literally, like you said, because they go with a joke for Kerry as Biden, which we hope is in the the realm of, you know that story about how Disney World has the Hall of Presidents and they kind of thought that Hillary was going to win and they had to kind of dress up the, the robot as Trump? You know, maybe the same thing here. They're like, well, we hope Biden's going to win, so we're going to put in this really famous comedic actor to play him. And then it's like, if he doesn't win, they're like, oh, no, we've lost Jim Carrey as, as Biden. But but like Craig said, they're setting up that gag with him of like, you know, the inner thoughts. And, and like you said, Di, you know, he's got a funny face anyway, so he's able to sort of do that, you know, thing with his jaw and... You know, you've got the great gag then of like, you know, don't ra- don't don't rise to it, Joe, don't rise to it, you know, like, and all that kind of stuff, which which is great. And 
but also like you said i think it will come up definitely later is that it's hard not to make fun of trump of course and it's hard for snl not to take a you know a, a certain stance but often that's because that is comedy's job to do that and we've seen that in britain as well you know we won't go into detail about it, but we mentioned before the show, you know, spit and images come back, which we had hoped would be, you know, a way of, you know, holding the government to account in some way or form as they did back in the years of Thatcher, etc. As yet to be seen, you know, with what we've seen early on of the show. But that is the kind of stuff that we need and is very popular. You know, you have people like Jonathan Pye and Graham Norton, etc. Even just, you know, Ch- General Chacho hosts, they'll poke fun at the prime minister or the leader of the opposition at the beginning of their shows because it's the easy gag to do. It's like the clear joke because everyone can get on board with it and they know they know what they're referring to. So outside of just the SNL uh, sketch, what what do you think is so pivotal about him as a comedian? Because like I said, you know, he's coming back from like the 90s. You know, he's been a big actor in Hollywood for quite a few years but not so much obviously known for satire you know he's been more of a clown like you said die he's got that sort of funny face but you know when you do look back at some of his work you got like you know the Truman Show you know Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind so there has been that more serious or commentary type pieces do you think that he is quite relevant to satire in that way or do you just see him as a sort of jokester? Well, for for the Truman Show, it's a good shout out because that, even though not directly a satire, it does try to satirize the very specific element of the media. Yeah. And, and as James as Jim Carrey as Jim Carrey is the fact that he has kind of always been that personality that he was always famous and known for his acting instead of his actual films. Hmm. Uh, it's like his name became the name. That that became the film. Like now what we have with Dwayne Johnson, like very few people will try to think five films of Dwayne Johnson in the last decades that is not Fast and Furious. Yeah. But everyone knows him. And, and that's what Jim Carrey was. And especially for comedy, there were a very handful of people who everyone would know without necessarily having the specific comedy minds. Mm. Yeah, quite quite similar to like Robin Williams as well. You know, he was kind of that actor as well of, you know, like a Robin Williams film. But then it's like, you know, thinking of which film, you know, he's in. Not so much as much grotesque humor, like you said, but he was still that kind of Robin Williams in kind of, you know, actor, that comedic actor that they put him in something and they're like, okay, instant hit because he's in it kind of thing. Just so bloody energetic, isn't he? You can't, you know, avoid him. And that's similar with when you're talking about Robin Williams. They're both uniquely energetic performers, which nowadays in the last sort of 10 years, they've gone out of fashion because most of these, a lot of our comedies have become a lot more um, downbeat and, you know, become more officey in style. So you've got like when they did the new Ghostbusters rather than sort of they're all just sort of standing around feeling a bit awkward and going yeah. um, but Jim Carrey's of that school who just shouted really loudly and ran around on the screen yeah it's more sitcom as well like in my mind I was thinking of ones and I was like Kevin Hart Kevin Smith etc and I was like cringing as I sort of thought of it I was like oh you know that's not the same like I said you know you got people like Jim Carrey Robin Williams who created their characters they you know developed them themselves they weren't so much like Stefano said of you know 
Dwayne the Rock Johnson just personas like Kevin Hart just plays Kevin Hart all the time kind of thing. I think there's also the degree to which there's just a wider array of appeal, right? I think the the thing with a lot of like comedic personalities at the moment is that they're very set with a certain type of audience. And I mainly mean this in terms of like age demographics, right? Because mm. um, at the moment, it definitely feels like relevant comedy is something that tends to be more towards the 20s era, as opposed to uh, as opposed to actors like Jim Carrey, who's able to basically just appear in a wider variety of mediums and be able to just latch on to, uh, latch on to basically any age group so that there's just an absolute affinity for him. So I think that's why we're happy to see him back, because obviously we would have seen him during our childhood periods to begin with, uh, as opposed to other comedians who just don't really have that type of impact. So that's why we think it's quite we think it's quite impactful that Carey is doing a character like Biden at the moment for SNL, when, say, other character, other comedians could be doing it, but just aren't doing it, but just haven't had like the same type of career to basically draw us in to begin with. Yeah, exactly. You've got like the people who, like you said, grew up with him. You've got the parents who are like, oh yeah, I remember, you know, watching Ace Ventura and my kids, that kind of thing. The funny faces can still make anybody laugh. That's all physical comedy, etc., which is a big part of it as well. But like I said, all of this does link into um, what we wanted to talk about as well today, which is a big icon of cinema. So at the moment, we've talked about how, you know, cinemas are struggling, but you know, what better time to sort of look back at cinemas especially to like 80 years ago to the silent era which was you know a big heyday of cinemas in which people would go see multiple films and in which you know comedy and satire were huge because people would go in droves to the cinema to all laugh together and this person we're going to talk about much like Carey much like Robin Williams etc was you know an icon because of his physical humor he was a massive appeal to audiences around the world because it was a language that everyone could understand he was a clown he was a silent star so it was just in his physicality of what he did but he used his platform as well to bring many political messages and to bring a lot of films that people are still talking about today and using moments from those films because they're like wow this is still relevant in 2020 despite this being made back you know, around the time of World War II. So that person we're talking about is Charlie Chaplin, a very famous icon of Hollywood. Uh, At the moment, The Great Dictator, which is one of his most famous films in which he parodied Hitler and the sort of developments that were happening around World War II. That is celebrating 80 years since it premiered in New York. Uh, came out in October 1940. And yeah, Chaplin had an amazing career. He was one of the first big successful comedians and entertainers, icons of cinema. You know, he was a big silent film star, along with people like Buster Keaton. Uh, He was born and raised in London, in England. So he was a massive British star. He went over to America and cracked America. Uh, He was born in uh, 1889, which is crazy to say, you know, talking about somebody who was born pre-1900s. Uh, and died on the 25th of December, actually, 1977. So he died on Christmas Day at the age of 88, which is pretty pretty good going because a lot of Hollywood stars, it's quite a shame when we talk about them and they, you know, they, they unfortunately die too early on or like in their 50s or 60s. But, you know, he had a very successful career. And we're going to be talking about three of his most famous films today, including The Great Dictator, because like I said, it's a great parallel to what we were talking about with SNL 
about having those figures which you just have to sort of mock and and make fun of. I think it's only right, guys, that we start off with that famous speech just to get us in the mindset of the great dictator. Uh, here is that moment from the end of the movie. I'm sorry, but I don't want to be a, an emperor. That's not my business. I don't want to rule or conquer anyone. I should like to help everyone if possible. Jew, Gentile, black man, white. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. We don't want to hate and despise one another. In this world, there's room for everyone, and the good earth is rich and can provide for everyone. The way of life can be free and beautiful, but we have lost the way. Greed has poisoned men's souls, has barricaded the world with hate, has goose-stepped us into misery and bloodshed. We have developed speed, but we have shut ourselves in. Machinery that gives abundance has left us in want. Our knowledge has made us cynical, our cleverness hard and unkind. We think too much and feel too little. More than machinery, we need humanity. More than cleverness, we need kindness and gentleness. Without these qualities, life will be violent and all will be lost. The aeroplane and the radio have brought us closer together. The very nature of these inventions cries out for the goodness in men, cries out for universal brotherhood, for the unity of us all. Even now, my voice is reaching millions throughout the world. Millions of despairing men, women, and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed. The bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die. And the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't give yourselves to brutes. Men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think and what to feel, who drill you, diet you, treat you like cattle, use you as cannon fodder. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men with machine minds and machine hearts. You are not machines. You are not cattle. You are men. You have the love of humanity in your hearts. You don't hate, only the unloved hate, the unloved and the unnatural. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke, it is written, the kingdom of God is within man, not one man, nor a group of men, but in all men, in you. You, the people, have the power. The power to create machines, the power to create happiness. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful, to make this life a wonderful adventure. Then, in the name of democracy, let us use that power. Let us all unite. Let us fight for a new world, a decent world that will give men a chance to work, that will give youth a future and old age a security. By the promise of these things, brutes have risen to power, but they lie, they do not fulfill that promise, they never will. Dictators free themselves, but they enslave the people. Now let us fight to fulfill that promise. Let us fight to free the world, to do away with national barriers, to do away with greed, with hate and intolerance. Let us fight for a world of reason. A world where science and progress will lead to all men's happiness. Soldiers, in the name of democracy, let us all unite! So yes, that was 
such an amazing speech that was made at the end of The Great Dictator and has become very famous in the world today. A lot of people might know it not even from that movie because it's been used so much in different aspects of pop culture. I think the first time I heard it was actually in a Paolo Nottini song. So it goes to show that, you know, it, it it does translate into so many different mediums in music. I think it was used in an advert not long ago on British television. So, and you know, how great was it in that speech as well? We heard him say, you know, I'm now talking to millions of children, adults around the world. And by no means am I saying that this podcast attracts millions at the moment. But, you know, it's fantastic that he's still able to reach that audience because of the internet, because of those videos that we're able to see online. Uh, but, you know, apart from that, for many of us, this was, you know, our first time watching the full movie. So we, you know, we had a, an interesting experience in seeing how this first full feature length satire came to be, came about, how it plays out, because now we have many more modern satires that have been made throughout the years. And yeah, it was the first talkie from Chaplin. So it was a big moment in history for that. It was a massive deal when it first came out. And obviously it's become infamous because, you know, he does parody you know, a big icon in history, which is Adolf Hitler. So, Dai, I know this was your sort of first time experiencing the film. You know, what What are your thoughts? What, what, what were your sort of first reactions? Well, I had no idea what to think. I was surprised because the movie, he plays, Chaplin plays two characters in the movie. It focuses on this kind of spoof version of Hitler called Hinkler. But then the other half of the movie, and really most of the movie, and the plot of the movie is dedicated to this Jewish character called, who doesn't have a name, he's known as the barber. Half of the movie is literally just talk, exploring this guy's life in the ghetto, getting beaten up by stormtroopers, um, and the plight of, of Jewish people in the build-up to the Second World War, um, which I hadn't realised. It's so harrowing at times. While he's using this slapstick to talk about just genuinely getting attacked and people trying to murder you and so yeah I was quite astonished that it had those dual sides to it really yeah I, I never realized it was so much like you said there was so much emphasis on the barber because when you see the plot summary you kind of think oh how a barber is mistaken for you know this Hinkler character and you think that that's going to be the major part of the film that's going to be like in the center of the story and you're like you know this is like an hour and a half in and that's not even happened yet so you know it's 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 kind of telling that that happens at the, right at the end. <laughs> yeah, it is a slightly weirdly structured movie in that there's sort of, it immediately sets up that he's playing both characters. So you assume it's going to be a sort of prince and pauper thing where they swap over. Yeah. And it's only at the very end when there's just a random shot of Hinkler in a boat with a shotgun. <laughs> yeah. And he just falls out of it and gets arrested. And yeah. then Mr. Barber gets put into Hinkler's place and that's why he does the speech. But that is really bizarre that they just tack it on at the end. I think that's why it works for me, though, because I think it's just one of those things where it sort of emphasised the message a little bit of like the type of ideology that's just being pushed is just one that's just incredibly, incredibly fickle and just reactionary. Insofar as you're able to just literally swap the person over and like literally having having him deliver a speech, literally contradicting everything that the that like the uh, Hinkler character was building up and still having all of those people cheer. I think. It was just a it was just a strong way of being able to just show how much the power and rhetoric was just the thing trying to win over like these people and that's basically mm -hmm. it's the it's the the terror of their rhetoric. So the fact that the swap only happens at the end, I think, is a a good way of conveying that. As well as then yeah. we get beautiful scenes like one of my favorite scenes is where uh, Henkler is is dancing with the globe in his hand, 
I think that's an incredible sequence. Yeah, that that's also like along with the speech, that's another one of those sort of famous movie history moments because again, it shows off Chaplin's sort of great art as a choreographer or sort of dancer as as a sort of mime, you know, it's and it's just yeah, it's just a great representation of dictators and leaders, you know, of just literally having the world in their hand. You know, it's great for that. And then yeah. popping it and then destroying the world. <laughs> yeah, and being distraught and, and crying in their into their sort of shoulders. A lot of the time in this the plot gives way to the political kind of aspirations of the film. I think he wants to show, particularly when you look at the context he was making it, he was producing the film in kind of 3839 when the what was really going on in Nazi Germany wasn't fully understood. Chaplin himself didn't understand the full extent of what was happening. And so he clearly wanted to depict what was going, you know, the plight of Jewish people in the ghettos and things like that. And then the idea of having this speech at the end, it doesn't really make sense in a character sense. Like the Barber character never shows any inclination towards having a political speech. No. And the characters themselves, I think, are pretty inconsistent all the way through. They sort of flip-flop between being sort of brave and cowardly and intelligent and assertive towards being not that at all. And there's no indication that the Barber character is going to have this amazing speech. In fact, he's been a coward all, all the build-up to him giving, giving that platform. Yeah. He's been trying to avoid it and being a coward, and then he just suddenly does it. Um, but I think when you look at it in terms of the context, um, America was still neutral at the time. A lot of people supported the Nazis in America at the time. Yeah. Um, and so for him, it was really depicting this step, just sheer, purely showing this these images on on the movie screen and then having that speech at the end was incredibly powerful at the time and i think he was more interested in getting those images across than he was in telling a, a particularly cohesive narrative with his characters yeah. in terms of the comedy as well it often the comedy the slapstick juxtaposes quite awkwardly with um with everything else that's going on where he'll suddenly interrupt the movie to have like a dance sequence for <laughs> yeah um, and you kind of think, what's this got to do with anything? But it's also where, like, I did appreciate, like, like you said, I think that he does often talk directly to the audience. And I think, like you said, that was his moment to do that. So talk to the people at home kind of thing, because he wanted to finish with this big speech. And I think the studios at the time were like, what are you doing? This is crazy. You don't end a film like with just a, a five minute monologue that like that's that's mad. Um, but like I said, there's m several times throughout this film and other films in which he sort of talks directly to the audience. Like, I think you get uh, the sort of love interest character. She sort of looks at screen at one point, doesn't she? And said, oh, is this way it's going to change? And, and you know, she, as if she's like talking to God. Um, and I think that that moment is almost like that at the end. So while the character doesn't really fit the character, it's almost, again, like it's his inner thoughts because he even then says to the his like love interest, you know, like, you know, are you out there? And, you know, it shows her face and it just ends with her because, like, they talk about, I think, about how important a lack of words are in that moment. You can tell a lot just from her reaction and that look of hope at the end. I think the fact they were definitely trying to push the emperor of the world idea onto the character uh, definitely shows the, you know, the intention of the film. Because... Notice how every time Emperor of the World is said, it's said with a lot more emphasis than all of his other titles, as if yeah. trying to basically be the warning to America of, if we don't stop him now, he's going to come for us. <laughs> Get it? Yeah, and it's quite similar to other representations we've had with 
controversial themes in movies, especially with, like I said, Nazism, etc. And I was trying to think of it in the context of, like, if you were to go watch this as somebody, like I said, who might have supported the Nazis or not thought it was that bad a thing. So I was trying to think of it in that context. And my most recent example I could think of was American Sniper, in which... I said, like, I went to see that film was just like, I'm really uncomfortable by this because I don't like the American patriotism and glorifying the Iraq war, which I think that in the American lens is seen as like, oh yeah, what a great film, you know, like showing this American hero, which then to a lot of other people came across as like, this is really bad, bad taste kind of thing, which maybe that's what people saw The Great Dictator as back when it first originally came out. It's actually a very good point that you brought out, American Sniper, because I remember watching it. I remember all of that stuff coming out. And I was on neither side. I was actually from on the side that, or at least for me, how I interpreted it, it was actually a critique on the obsession of the, of the American military to do these missions. Mm, yeah. That's how I read it. And, and they, they had a trauma that comes after doing those missions and that also that that becomes almost a level to an addiction for some soldiers yeah. and yeah and the one side is like hearing all the stuff from both sides i kind of really disagreed very much so but again i think that is the matter which really depends to I think it depends on a lot of things. It depends on how much you know of the subject and how much of films of that genre you have seen. There's a lot of stuff, and especially with someone with Clint Eastwood, which I know both hear a lot about his personal life, but also his film life, which is very juxtaposing sometimes. I could see what he was trying to do. And like you said, The Great Detective is another film which did something very similar back then because for us right now we can we can understand where he was coming from we understand the context of it uh but back then especially like we all just said that around that time a lot of people didn't know what to think about that specific character or just generally the idea of fascism so for them, they, some people interpret it as being a glorification of Hitler instead of actual critique. And of course, some other people later on thought of it as a communist propaganda, which we'll come to that later. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but it kind of is funny because it just goes back to what I said before, that it really depends to what you see in the film and based on your own preferences or psychology, or your political beliefs, you will see what you want to see. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's also a great example, like we were talking about before with Donald Trump. You know, it's that idea that Dai was saying about is you can't not make fun of him. So again, even if like Hitler might have been like the greatest person in the world at that time, you know, you can't deny like looking at him that he is very much like a a character, a very out there strange person and that's what Chaplin latched onto so one of the things that I loved which was a quote that he had was the funniest thing in the world is to ridicule imposters and concealed people in high places the greater the imposter you take on 
the better chance of making a funny picture and it would be hard to find a bigger imposter in the world than Hitler. So, you know, like at that time, like I said, he wanted to, you know, mock him, etc. because, you know, he was such a big person in the world at that time. And again, that's exactly true with, you know, Alec Baldwin playing Donald Trump, etc. Even though a lot of people can say a lot of good things about him, you know, it's hard not to make fun of him because he is so ridiculous and he is such a crazy character. And I also love the fact that uh, I think one of the behind the scenes I was watching, you know, they said Hitler, the man who stole uh, Chaplin's moustache, you know, like that aspect of him being like, well, I'm going to get my own back on this guy who stole my look and, you know, has kind of dragged it through the mud ever since as well. So I think that that is fantastic as well. How much of the German in that film was actual German and how much of it was just, he was just shouting whatever syllables that sounded aggressive? Yeah, well, no, it's just gobbledygook. Yeah, it? exactly. Considering he's like the dictator of, was it Tomania? I'm pretty sure it was just a uh, Swedish chef, chef in it with a... Uh, Che- che- cheese and Kraken was my favorite. <laughs> cheese and Kraken, Cheese and Kraken. <laughs> yeah, there was Cheese and Kraken, uh, uh, Titan Zebelton. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Did we think the film was very funny? Yeah, I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> I actually, I, I, I thought it was, well, I, I probably did get more laughs out of the kid, but, and especially for one particular joke, which I'll talk about later, but I thought there was quite, a, like, even though I didn't, like, burst out laughing as many times, I did love, like, the hail handshake. I thought that was a great visual gag uh, where they kept sort of up and down. I loved the, um, and like I said, even though it is, it, I don't know whether I I'm like I know you said about the physical humor how it doesn't always work but I don't know I I think for example in this instance with another film we'll talk about later I didn't find the physical stuff worked in the context of that film here I didn't have as much of an issue with it because it was a satire and it was mocking Hitler etc so I didn't mind that more clown aspect to the to the film so when the barber for example was being chased by the rocket i don't know something about it just made me laugh i just liked the rocket spinning around chasing him um but even like said the the subtle things the lines i love the like you know instead of fewer that like our fooey <laughs> you know please welcome our fooey <laughs> hinkler and um but even just some of the subtle so more political stuff i loved when he was talking to his like advisor was in he was just like uh, what will be the end of us? And he's like, do as I say. And he's like, madman, shut up. Very well. <laughs> and then he's like immediately there with a, a war, a declaration of war. And it's like, I thought that that kind of stuff was great. And just like I said, you know, the fact that they're called the double cross party, I thought that all of that was really fun. Um, so I, I thought there was a lot of really good jokes in there. I, 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 I did think it was a genuine good comedy because it was filled with a lot of jokes, I found. I will say yeah, I did. I did laugh uh, at times throughout the film. I will say, apart from the rocket sequence that David talked about, which I also did enjoy, <laughs> just because of the physical timing element of it, uh, I thought the opening war sequence was pretty bad. Because um, yeah. bear in mind, I watched it right after watching The Kid, right? So I basically watched a silent film in which, uh, you know, all of the slapsticks basically has a lot of sound behind it, so it doesn't feel awkward. When you're then in the middle of a war scene and the slapstick is going on and there's no there's no sound behind it, it mm. comes off as really awkward. Apart from just the occasional shouts of just "What are you doing, man? Get over here!" and it's just it's just <laughs> oh god, this feels weird. Yeah, I did kind of like. I did have to like this all. Like it's like oh, I found you guys, and they're like, 
hey, he's the enemy and he got mixed up. But but like I said, you did have like that, that airplane sequence like when they were upside down, like that went on a bit long. You were like, you didn't really need to like milk this as much as you did. Well, so it's just a bit ridiculous. Oh, I'm so exhausted. I can't fly this plane. <laughs> yeah. like... I mean, to be fair, it was back then. Yeah. And uh, especially for something like that, basically a war sequence in a comedy Mm. It was almost ahead of back then because back then war films were specifically about the action and the drama. It was never about the comedy for it. No. And... No, I so I agree with that, but I do think there's a degree to which you shouldn't necessarily leave a sequence like that, which which previously worked well because of the combination of visuals and music. Leaving it musicless or like soundless is probably a mistake, and I'm surprised they didn't try and get some orchestration over it. Yeah, I think it shows a lack of understanding of how the medium really worked at times. Yeah, probably because it was his first talkie. Yeah, so. with the, um, particularly with the aeroplane bit, one of the big jokes in it is quite a good visual gag where they're, they, the plane ends up flying upside down, but they, for some reason they don't realise. So like yeah. when he opens his bottle, all the water comes up. But they give it away before the shot of them upside down. They show the plane is upside down and then they show a reversed shot of them upside down, but the right way up sort of thing. And so the joke is you meant to realize that they're upside down. Yeah. Yeah. It's just not very well filmed, basically. And the, the elongated way of they take a very long time in this upside down plane. And so the one actor is just kind of mumbling all the way through it because clearly he's got like one line that he's repeating for about two minutes. Yeah, because maybe it was his first talkie. Like I said, technically, I did appreciate some of it. But like I said, I think once you get into the dictator stuff, and the barber stuff, that's where it becomes a lot stronger. I also did love uh, when the, is it Napoloni, the dictator from there comes to visit and they're having like their show off of their artillery and they're like, oh, they're heavy tanks. And now the light artillery. And he's yeah. like, that is light. <laughs> this is like no sound. Like that was a great moment of using sound effectively, having like, you know, the big massive artillery. And now the light artillery. And this is like a tiny little sound. And he's like, that is light. <laughs> like yeah. that, that was great. that end speech is extremely iconic because it's timely. Uh, it's, uh, it's both timely and timeless. If you change some of the words in there, it can really work today. Uh, if you change like the words of radio and airplane into the internet and um, still airplanes, we're still, we haven't really changed that, that much. <laughs> um, Hoverboards, drones. <laughs> Change it to drones. <laughs> actually, dr actually, drones not a bad idea, to be honest. So yeah, if you change that and put it on a contemporary element, it would work perfectly. And it's both fascinating, but also quite sad. Going from the great dictator, I think it's important to, you know, we talked so much about, you know, Chaplin as a star. So it's kind of important then to sort of look back at him as, you know, his beginnings, apart from his short films, but, you know, The Kid, which was released in 1921. That was his first feature film and was, like Stefano said, still a silent movie because he loved silent cinema. Um, so we wanted to revisit this one as well as to get a bigger idea of Chaplin. So why this one isn't so much like political or satire, there's still some commentary in there, uh, but it does show off Chaplin as a silent film star, as a comedian. And, you know, something which is impressive throughout all his film is the fact that I think that he 
directs, writes, stars, and often orchestrates his films as well, which I think is fantastic. So, you know, what did we think of, you know, the kid, re- you know, watching again such such an old movie, you know, definitely one of the oldest films I've seen in like a long, long time. It's basically just pure physicality, right? And I think it was just great to see like Chaplin just doing what he does and being able to convey such a wider range of like emotions and scenarios just with like the way in which he operates and just there were a lot of there were a lot of moments that I think emotionally works quite well I think that like the dynamic between him and uh, him and the child in the end was actually quite uh, quite sweet even if I think that the the reaction of the police was to send this try and send this uh, child to the county orphan asylum was a bit was a bit much uh, mainly because I'm just unsure about why specifically an asylum is needed as opposed to like, you know, a regular orphanage, but sure, why not tension? <laughs> I also really enjoyed like some of the sequences, even some of the sequences that didn't need to be there, like the fight scene with just like the big muscular guys. It's like if, if, if your kid beats my brother, I'll beat you. And he just pulls the kid over at one point. He's like, yeah, he's a champion. Like yeah. goes over, he punches him out. He's like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I had a great time with the f- great time with the film. It was just incredibly light. Yeah, that's what I liked about it. It's just so charming, and like I said, uh, that's the effect that a lot of silent films can have, you know. And it adds to it as well with those typical sort of like sped up sort of sequences, the fast motion of it. I had the same reaction with the fight scene. I just love like that little kid just like going at it all the time, and him just sort of like pushing him away, etc. And I think the moment is it where the policeman tries to sort of break up the fight between the brother and Chaplin, and he just knocks this policeman. Yeah, straight and he's out just and there. He's, he's just there for the rest of the scene. Yeah just like spread out on the floor i love that yeah and it's just the physical aspect of him we were talking earlier about like other comedians and stuff and it made me think as well as like somebody i grew up with a lot was mr bean like rowan atkinson like that's another actor comedian who you know hasn't become like jim carrey and stuff in which is like rowan atkinson as but it's a fantastic example of a character who's largely silent is a lot of physical comedy and you know you can see them watching the kid why you know, Chaplin was such an influence because it's just something about his look. He just makes you smile, just the way that he moves. I think it's because he doesn't look like a stereotypical Hollywood star either. He looks like a sort of an uncle, you know, some like a, a grandfather, somebody you would sort of know in real life. Uh, like the one subtle moment I loved as well is when you had the part where he was w- walking through the lane and you get, you know, back in that time where people would be chucking buckets of rubbish and stuff outside of windows and then he finds that baby and he's sort of looking up <laughs> above in sort of horror of like oh my god has this come out of a window kind of thing but just the way he does it i just love his like movement and his like innocence and gentleness and sort of looking up like oh uh, where did this come from you know I, I thought that that you know was was fantastic and just just such a nice touch yeah and the core plot of the movie i think brings a lot of that out as well um because the, the story of the kid is him raising this child in, in the slums, basically. Yeah, you've automatically got a really a basis to which you can like these characters. And so you really understand where they're coming from. And every single tiny piece of movement and all those things are really helped by the fact that they've got this core script that brings to life these characters. Um, and so he's automatically an underdog. So And it's automatically fun to see him kind of trying to get out of scrapes and to and having little victories and things. So I think in that sense, the plot of, the plot of that movie is one of the most cohesive, I think, of, all, of the three we saw. And it, that's what I think really elevates a lot of the humour in it. 
I will yeah. also say it was it was nice to have a film with a good child actor in it. I think it just it's reaffirms to me. Yeah. Yeah. I think it just reaffirms to me uh, a lot of child actors can be good if we just don't hear them talk. <laughs> I was thinking that. <laughs> I will say the other problem kid is obviously the, the one he fights. And that kid is one of the ugliest kids I've ever seen in my <laughs> life. <laughs> like, wow. Jesus Christ. I looked at him and thought, ugh. <laughs> I don't know why that was an instant reaction. I was glad he was getting the shit kicked out of him. <laughs> oh my God. You look at that kid and tell me there's anything to love about it. Even his brother was weird. I mean, like a man does not look like that. Yeah, that guy had definitely been sort of like altered to look more sinister and more strange. Speaking of things altered to look more sinister, what the hell was up with that dream sequence though? Again, it, se- it it reminded me though again of that like classic Hollywood, the idea of like the George Melee sort of strange fantasy elements of like, you know, why are we here and why are we doing this? But it did lead to my absolute fate. I literally, I haven't laughed like this in a long time. And I think Craig will understand why I found it funny because this is often something we'll just laugh at. And it's just, it, it's, I don't think it was intended to be funny, but I just found it hilarious. And it was just the fact that everyone was in these angel wings and costumes and he's looking around. And then this dog just like comes in on like a string. And the dog clearly just looks like, why am I here? What am I doing? Like, you know, like, you know, probably looking at his owner like mummy. And they're just like watching the dog like, ooh. And then it just floats away again. It just comes in like, Hi, and then just like drifts back out. I had I rewinded it about three times because I just loved the look on this dog's face of just like I don't want to be here. You know when you dress a dog up like in a jumper or something, and it kind of just has that awkward like, why are you doing this to me? That was the look that this dog had, and I absolutely loved it. <laughs> and also just classic Hollywood kind of special effects of just literally the dog just droops in on like a wire and just like levitates back out again i just thought that was amazing i mean to be fair it was not bad wiring it was pretty good yeah i was you know i rewound it a few times it was like yeah i can't see the like strings so yeah fair play it's just charming and i think that is the big thing that made chaplin such a star because he always touched upon some stories like you said simple but relatable um he always tried to go with something universal and what is more universal than taking care of a child and you're loving it as your own? It's, mm. it's something that, especially around that time, because through the Depression era, there were unfortunately many, many kids, many orphans, and, and a lot of them unfortunately did not have, were not as lucky as the child. So to have that like small sense of hope, mm. For this being possible, it really elevated people back then. And Chaplin himself was like, he had been in workhouses and stuff as a child. Like he really, like, I think a lot of people cite Chaplin as like one of the biggest rag to riches stories ever told because he literally was like dirt poor. His family were like, you know, unemployed, really came from a harsh background, really dark things happen, you know, with like death in his family. He was like having to work in, like I said, these workhouses etc so a lot of that i think reflects his his own relationship with his own mother and his own experiences as well yeah especially with his mother especially with a mother character in the film it's a it very much is basically i think that was something i really appreciated especially back then because usually back then they will try to 
even mother character would do something like that to her kid at the beginning, just embedding it, they would, they would make her as the villain. But instead, mm. he tried to give an empathy to her. Yeah. Starting showing her, like, like she does suffer some level of post-birth depression and also the fact that she is all alone and and her, and her partner left her or, or just simply forgotten about her. And showing that how generally difficult it is to do that on your own, but then like, but then changing her mind in the end, mm. which is which is very common. Uh, fortunately, whenever it comes to mothers giving away their children, but but uh, one thing another realized by rewatching the kids and kind of like having all the flashes of watching all these other films, kind of realized that his character of the the Trump the Trump you don't want the Trump <laughs> sorry pronunciation careful <laughs> uh, I was on the streets I was all alone <laughs> and then I rose <laughs> all alone yeah, and found a child yeah. <laughs> basically I realized that that this kind of character because this kind of character appears to the majority of his films even his shorts and I kind of started realized that he really reminded me of the gunslinger character. It's uh, like, especially on Westerns, like where you always have the lone silent hero just going to town to town, just stumble upon situations and just saving the day. It's very much that. And it fascinated me that tried to track that trope all the way to the present. And, it's and I was trying to find even beforehand of if there was anyone before, but there were, but they weren't as famous uh, or specifically mainstream as Chaplin's. And, and when we say about Chaplin influencing comedy and some extent cinema, if you start thinking about that, you start thinking about uh, characters and characters you would never think that there is some association. Like I would never think uh, 10 years ago, especially 10 years ago, that Champlain and Clint Eastwood have, have something similar. Yeah. Uh, one has to do about comedy, the other one has to do about westerns. So what did you guys think of uh, like our final film, which I think came out in uh, 1957, was A King in New York. So this was uh, like the penultimate film of Chaplin. And it was his final sort of big performance on screen. It was like his last but one movie. You know, a lot of what we've talked about has like reappeared here. So while we had The Great Dictator, which was like a big political satire, The Kid, which was a more personal film, a more uh, symbolic of his silent film era. And the fact that A King in New York then sort of comes back as a sort of like commentary, but with a lot more cultural and political elements. It's not just one thing and it's a lot about his personal experiences. So, you know, Dai, you know, what what did you think of like A King in New York? It's quite a different experience, I think, to the rest of his films, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's completely missing almost all of those sort of physical and the silent era of Audubillian kind of humour that you come to expect from Chaplin. Um, it's much more sedate and um, gentle, um, but um, yeah, I, I quite enjoyed it. It's um, it's it's funny in parts, um, but it's remarkably prescient. I thought, you know, so many of the elements that he brings up. So it's about this character who um, 
is uh, exiled into um, into the United States, and he kind of gets picked up by marketing executives and gets like tricked into going on television, and they start giving him facelifts and all these sorts of things, which is so relevant to culture today, having like kind of secret marketing and uh, television shows and getting paid to you know eat food and say yum yum. It's uh, things I didn't realize people would be talking about in the 50s. So I was surprised. Yeah, it's like how modern it felt in some ways. Because again, that's why I brought up the Truman Show earlier, because that's why it reminded me of like that idea of when Truman is just like, why are you doing that? When she's just like, oh, honey, would you like some brand toast made by, you know, and that element comes into a king in New York when they're having that dinner scene. And that woman's like, do you ever suffer from BO? And she starts that you know, monologue about it. And he's like, what are you doing? What's wrong with you? And that's what reminded me of the Truman Show. But yeah, and what you said, I was just thinking about it now. I was just like, oh my God, it's like the early reflections of Google and, you know, listening to our conversations being like, you know, oh, um, I I wouldn't mind learning guitar. You go on to YouTube or Google, you know, advertising guitar lessons, buy a guitar, that kind of stuff as well, isn't it? So yeah, I'm I'm quite scared. I'm quite freaked out now, Dave. (laughs) Yeah. You can't be predicted at all. Yeah. Which they said that he did a lot, like we said, in, in The Great Dictator and in, you know, in this movie. Yeah, and like the dining scene with all the celebrities is definitely my favorite part. Mm. And mainly because I, I actually was studying about this uh, several months ago, uh, just trying to meet to find uh, maybe a, an article about it. And apparently a lot of famous acts at the time, as they were having contracts with studios, to make their films regularly. They also had contracts with specific companies that they were only were uh, or used in public. And it's very, it's very similar to what happens now with fashion and perfumes a lot. But yeah, and I found it very brave of Chaplin to show that because especially back then, I don't think a lot of like mainstream people knew about it and i think that is the point because this film it is his first film outside of the us mm. so the restraints that he had before were completely gone yeah. because i don't think that would have been able to actually happen in the us at the time no and that's why they call it his most rebellious film because you know it literally is you know he's been extradited from the us and he's literally like well, screw you, I'm going to make like a film that's like criticizing your entire culture and, you know, Americanism and all that kind of stuff, which, you know, I think is is quite interesting in itself. So the story around the film is almost more interesting than the actual movie itself, which I think is is quite reflective again of what quite quite often happens with a lot of films and celebrities these days as well. So I think that that is very interesting um, I think another good example of like the reflection of modern day movies or like spoofs that we have is that cinema sequence when they're watching the trailers. That was one of my favorite sequences in which they're just like, what's like the first joke? Is it like, he's like, you know, stick him up. She's like, don't shoot. And then it's like the trailer, like, will he shoot? And it's like, find out. And it's like, and then the whole uh western shootout scene and they're just like back and forth and just constant you know that was like a great commentary which again just felt weird to see in like a 50s film you're like oh my god like i've you don't see that kind of parody and satire until decades later yeah Yeah, yeah. it's weird 
because I was actually was we were watching it. Because by the way, this is like my first time watching it. I have never seen it before. No, I never. I either. For some reason, like even though I have seen like all his Southern Era and his first talk is, I'd never watched that. But while I was having that experience, I was really thinking, this is like once upon a time in Hollywood. Mm. Like this is very similar one with the other. You know, if if Tarantino suddenly ended once upon a time with a big conversation about uh, about what communism is, it would have been the same film almost. Yeah. Well, that that's again what was interesting is we were talking about earlier with the Great Dictator is uh, the idea you were mentioning about like you know they they couldn't mention Hitler and that they called him like Hinker etc. But when they made that film. Uh, Nazis took it as like propaganda to say like uh, you know here's why uh, Chaplin is evil and they were trying to make out that he was Jewish and he was like I'm not Jewish like you know he made it very clear and they were using that film as an example as to why Jewish people were evil etc because they were saying look at what this Jew has created and he, he isn't Jewish and he was very you know vocal about that and like again through that speech it was very clear that he was just in support of you know, freedom and liberty and, you know, ending wars, etc. But then the offset of that then, which happened years later, was then, oh, he's a communist. And again, he was like, I'm not a communist. And he was very vocal about that. And that's a big part of this film is like his personal experience in America, in which he was like, you know, sent away from the country because they were, tr- the FBI were trying to get him, uh, trying to make out that he was a communist etc and that you know is such a big part of this the plot in this film and you can see that because you know there's elements that reflect the mccarthyism and i think the the rosenberg incident he has i think he had a lot of sympathy for the rosenbergs when that happened originally so a lot of that is in this film and yeah it, it's very interesting that he always played it as like i'm not a part of this group i'm just somebody who believes in you know free speech and liberty and you know he wants the best for the world but somebody's always there trying to attribute them to something because i think the reason he got the main way that they got him was through like a love affair which again was like that seems so reflective of today they were like kind of reminded me of hamilton almost that they were just like oh we got him now he had an affair with somebody and you know and it's that kind of idea yeah well it's quite um shocking to suddenly see the whole thing turn into those mccarthy's show trials Mm. Um, because it's no hint of it earlier on, and then suddenly no. the whole film takes this turn. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it is quite brave, and it's it's one of many um pieces at the time which kind of tackled that the, you know, those show trials because so many of those trials targeted famous people, and so mm. you got like Arthur Miller's the famous one who spoke about that a lot. Um, but I do like how kind of ridiculously simple his conclusion to mm. his version of satire about the show trials is that. His character goes into the trial, accidentally brings a fireman's hose in with him, yeah. and everyone sprays water at all of the politicians. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which I appreciate for how incredibly dumb it is. From quite a sort of sophisticated movie, like earlier on, the satire mm. is fairly sophisticated and, and uh, intelligent in the way that the characters kind of drag through it all. Um, and then it ends with just the most stupid thing you could possibly imagine. Yeah. Uh, of just spraying water on the people he didn't like. It does come across as just the clown with the flower kind of moment of just like, you know? also just an absolute escapist dream, right? Just the idea of, well, this is all really dark and gloomy. Hose fight. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And that's probably like 
the best thing for it, really. There are a lot of patched together different details and occasionally it does suddenly fall into slapstick as well. And I think throughout all of all three of these movies, you can see sort of there's not always the most coherent kind of core th- themes and plot to what's going on. Like Chaplin seems to just throw in details that he thinks will be funny or yeah. prescient or whatever. And it doesn't really matter if they match up. So in that one as well, his character is more or less consistent. But then yeah. at one moment, he's suddenly a complete dithering idiot when like he sees a girl through the keyhole having a bath. Yeah. Suddenly he goes from being this really graceful, sort of, you know, pleasant kind of gentleman. Mm. Suddenly being this idiot who's like scrambling around to like peep through the keyhole. Yeah. Clearly it's just because he thought, oh, that'll be funny. And he, he, he obviously doesn't had less of an interest in character and more of an interest in just sort of whatever the things that he wanted to say as, a, as an individual. Obviously Chaplin is a very iconic part of Hollywood. So I think it's only right that he has a place in the movie vault but what films best represent him from what we've discussed today? Well, it's difficult because you did choose uh, three films, which each one represents something very specific of his, of him. And, and, and each one came out on a very specific time in his life. And so I'm not really certain. Um, I definitely lean far more to Great Dictator because of how extremely relevant it is. Yeah. And and how much of a brave film generally uh, is. But of course, the kid is it, it it's timeless. It's something that really represents Chaplin as the, as a star. Yeah. But the problem is, like, as years passed by, he became far more than that character. He became, he became the one, the two characters, the dictator. He became uh, another one later on when he left the U.S. So it's difficult to choose, to be honest. Uh, to be honest, whatever Dai goes for, I'm probably going to go with that. Yeah, I love the kid. I think the kid, the kid was my favorite of the three. Yeah. Um, I thought it was really lovely. And, and it was funny. I think The King of New York is the one that we can not really... It's not as interesting. Yeah. It's not as funny. It's not as good. No. Not worry about that one. The Dictator, I thought... I found watching it... Because I watched it for the first time and I didn't really know anything about it sort of thing. And so watching it for the first time, it felt a little bit... Almost shallow sort of thing, really, yeah. until you look and realise that it was 1940 that he made it. Yeah. Like if he'd made that in sort of 1945, it's kind of a fairly almost like toothless kind of um, attack on the Nazis, really. It's, um, and then the speech at the end is kind of almost arbitrary, really, of going to, of course, be nice to people sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but in context, when, you, when I then learned to read about behind the scenes of it, and you realise that it's actually one of the bravest films, mm. you know, he could have made, um, that at the time and the context of it, it makes it absolutely incredible. And so for the context of The Dictator, as a moment in history, I think that's kind of really deserving of being remembered. But in terms of being just a really good movie, I think The Kid is just a solid movie. Yeah. And I'll watch yeah. again. I also think as well, given the fact that it, 
A, the kid was an incredibly strong film in and of itself, but B, the fact that he was able to start that transition, I think is something that needs to be recognised. So I would happily say that the kid should go in. Yeah. I also think the great dictator should go in because while it is true that, say, as as like a coherent film as we would consider it, it has aspects of it missing. I think that the moments that are are strong are incredibly strong. I think the themes that are there are are incredibly strong and the and as well like when you actually look at the history i mean there have been several films that we put in uh the film vault for more pressing reasons rather than just like its individual quality as film but necessarily what it represents and i think looking at it from that lens as well i think it's a piece of cinema that needs to be recognized and celebrated yeah especially especially for that speech so i would argue for those two films yeah i would say the same like its impact and its influence is just as important and i think again with the speech i think you know i'd I'd even say die if it was even outside of the war like made afterwards i think that's why that speech is so infamous is because again the speech you know the moment of like don't be machine men and you know that kind of thing is again relevant even outside of like nazism and world war ii is like it's got many different elements the work in its own context as well so i think that the film does work in that context especially comparing it to a king in new york which like said sort of fizzles out the end of his career with lots of hodgepodge kind of stuff and doesn't work quite as well as a film i think the great dictator is a lot based on maybe expectancy and i think whether like you said i was surprised by it to be like oh this isn't what i expected but i think yeah maybe like multiple viewings can sort of like add to it um but yeah and like craig said you know the the dance sequence with the globe and the speech you know all of those are so so iconic that it it deserves to go in for those elements so yeah i think the kid and the great dictator go this week into the movie vault the kid and the great dictator sounds like a really really (laughs) weird combination (laughs) yeah yeah no, wait, that's Jojo Rabbit. Yeah, I was going to say, it is, yeah. <laughs> Going this week into the movie vault, melded together. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, if you have a favourite Chaplin film at home, guys, please do let us know in our social media. And, yeah, let us know what you think of The Great Dictator, A King in New York, and The Kid. Like I said, and if you had never seen any of those films, now is a great chance to revisit them and revisit Chaplin, especially in times where we could all use a good laugh and a good smile. Uh, We now go on to our final moment of the show, which will test our champions uh, who will be facing off against each other instead of against Craig (laughs) and every other team. Uh, So it's over to the endgame. We're in the endgame Okay, Endgame time. So we've looked a lot of uh, at Chaplin's uh, later career, especially when getting to the end of the silent era, into the talkies. But let's not forget the fact that there's a lot of there's a lot of films, including short silent films, under Chaplin's repertoire that I think we should. I would like to test our champions of the Endgame on. So welcome to this game, which is called Chaplin or Chapel Out. <laughs> I'm I'm going to give you the title of a of a film, and I want you to buzz in and tell me. If that is a film that Chaplin is in, or if it is not. So I want you to say Chaplin or Chapel Out. The idea is if you if you get it right, you get a point. If you get it wrong, your opponent gets the points. 
Sounds like a Vegas wedding, like chapel in, chapel out. Get married, five minutes in, five minutes out. <laughs> it's actually like marriage. Okay, so this is basically going to be quite quick fire. So, all right, number one, kid auto races at Venice. Die. Chapel out. It's chapel in. Nah. Number two, a film Johnny. Steph. Chapel out. That's chapel in. Oh, damn. Number three, Metropolis. Die. Chapel out. Correct. <laughs> damn it. <laughs> Fritz, Fritz Lang movie. In. <laughs> I know. Yeah. yeah. Cruel, cruel love. Steph. Chapel out. That's chapel in. Uh. Number five. Court of the cabaret. Steph. Chapel out. That's chapel in. Oh. <laughs> wow. All right. Number six. Cain and Abel. Die. Chapel out. It Correct. must be eventually. Yes. Next. Caught in the rain. Die. Chapel in. Correct. Oh. Next. Vaudeville Zambezi. <laughs> Either way. <laughs> Die. Surely chapel out. Correct. Oh. Next up, laughing gas. Steph. Chapel in. Correct. Police. <laughs> what about them? Sting and the. Yeah, he was Sting. <laughs> Die. Chapel in. Correct. Oh. The Not very original title. What? The Lodger. Oh. Steph. Chapel out. Correct. Shanghai. <laughs> Steph. I hope Chapel in out. That's Chapel in. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't want to see that. Behind the screen. Die. Chapel out. Chapel in. Yeah. Tash for mischief. What's the first word? Tash. Uh, Steph. Chapel in. Chapel out. Oh. Damn. Was that actually something else or just made up? Oh, I made that one up. <laughs> um, <laughs> the Pilgrim. Oh. Steph. Chapel in. Correct. Current days. Die. Chapel out. Correct. <laughs> Modern times. Steph. Chapel in. Correct. And on the record, my favorite one. A countess from Hong Kong. Steph. Chapel in. Correct. His final film he started. Souls for sale. Die. Chapel out. Chapel in. What? selling souls souls for stuff <laughs> what <laughs> is that a sequel souls for stuff 
<laughs> Die. Gaffle out. Correct. Uh, <laughs> and finally... For gold. And finally, Earth. David Attenborough, planet Earth. <laughs> Steph. Chapel out? It is indeed Chapel out. Okay. Okay. So that. So now we've come to the end of that end game. So the final. Uh, so the final scores. Steph ended with nine. Die is the winner with twelve. Yes. <laughs> Congratulations, Die. I'm winning everything now. I feel so yeah. good. <laughs> Wait. Does yeah. that does that make it the lead attorney now? Yeah, I get the. I I own the belt now. <laughs> Whoever defeats me, I'll have to pass oh, the belt. Oh, so on. now we have to change this to Heal and Florakis. Yeah. So, yeah, thank you guys for joining us once again. A very fun episode. Uh, great diving into the deep realms of history of silent cinema and political satire. Talking from everything from Jim Carrey to Charlie Chaplin. Tell us some of your favorite comedians at home and what films you would love to see in the movie vault as your favorite political satires. I'm sure we'll be talking about it again as Craig would very much like to bring up certain satires that <laughs> he was discussing before this episode as well. Uh, but where can we find you guys? Uh, Die, obviously I know usual place is just other episodes of this podcast and in life in general, is it? Yeah, probably. And uh, Stefanos, where can we catch yourself? Uh, mostly on Twitter at SYFloragis. And also, if you guys are interested in other political satires, I would suggest to check Death of Stalin, Vice, and just for the fun of it, the thick of it. Yeah, Death of Stalin is amazing. Yeah, also, uh, also, the American version of the thick of it, Veep, which I think it's far more intelligent in matter of politics than current politics in the U.S. Hmm. And they're, they're idiots. That's how yeah. I believe about the U.S. there now. I've seen good things about Veep as well. So, yeah, check it out, guys. You can catch us as well at Fresh Take Hub on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can also catch us at our exclusive socials for the podcast, which is Well Good Movies on all the same platforms as well, as well as on the website freshtakehub.com slash wellgoodmovies. And yeah, please tell us any future topics you'd love to see or any movies you want to challenge us to watch or put in the movie vault. Let us know and check out our many great episodes that we've done in the past as well. So thank you once again, guys. Anything lastly from yourself, Craig? I just want to leave everyone with some words from one of my favorite silent films. How <laughs> provoking, wow. <laughs> really so, deep, yeah. yeah. Very deep. Uh, there, was a there was actually a title screen that came on screen, which uh, nobody at home will get to see. <laughs> Maybe we can uh, finish it as, as the words of Chaplin, a picture with a smile and perhaps a tear. Thank you, guys. We'll catch you in the next one. And yeah, have a good one. Stay safe. Bye. Bye. Au revoir. And now I'm done.
oh yes it's the captors it's the practice of kidnapping people to serve as sailors <laughs> um, oh, wow. so in the uk like taking the king's penny was what they used to call it they used to like you took a you took a coin and then you'd have to serve on a ship yeah um so yeah that was what americans called being press ganged into the navy they called it right, shanghai. Okay. yeah apparently it's just because they were often sent to shanghai the ships would often go to shanghai right okay so that meant you were going to be put on a boat and then you go to shanghai um probably to sell people opium <laughs> 